0: Part two, more bass and faster decisions. In the second part of this episode, Steve and I chat about the story and acoustics of his studio electrical audio, some of his favorite microphones, the longevity of analog, tape machine specs, and the implications of working all analog, from session prep to becoming a better decision maker. So in that second part, I will um, put back your recording engineer slash studio owner hat. <laughs> um You own Electrical Audio in Chicago. Can you tell us about the uh, history of the studio? How long it took to build it? The design features like the Adobe walls and the uh, coupling, decoupling systems between the room or like the coupling with the basement, etc. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, the studio was built um, over the course of several years. I bought the building in 1995. Um, We had the general plan and verify you know that was sort of fancied up by a proper architect fairly early it took a long time to execute um studio b opened in april of 97 so about a year and a half after we bought the building and studio a opened about a year and a half after that and there was construction underway the entire time in one studio or the other the studio was built To a standard that I I thought would mean that I would never have to go anywhere else. And I'm, you know, more than 20 years later, uh, I'm still quite happy here. Um, Each of the rooms in the studio is effectively a separate building, meaning it has its own footings in the basement, its own foundation walls, and then masonry walls made out of adobe that form the perimeter of each of the rooms. So every room in the building is if, is effectively a separate building, and, and there are little alleyways between them that isolate each of the rooms from each other. This provides very, very good sound isolation and good vibration isolation, not just between the studio rooms, but between the rest of the city and us. Like We're right next to a major thoroughfare, uh, Belmont Avenue, and so there are trucks rumbling by all the time, and we're immune to that. There was a building next door that was being demolished by, you know, a wrecking ball. And we were able to conduct sessions through that entire thing, despite the fact that they were literally smashing the building next door. (laughs) Um, So that aspect of the studios uh, worked out really great because of the way that, that construction that I just described where there are footings in the basement and then foundation walls and then structural walls. In the basement of each of these rooms, there's another room of the same footprint that's formed by the foundation walls in the basement. And so each of these rooms has that air volume coupled to this air volume. There's a a vent around the perimeter of the room that ties those two air volumes together and provides for much greater air volume in the acoustic sense than you can see in the room around you. And that, that linearizes the rooms down to lower frequencies. So this control room is comfortably large, but it's actually twice as large from an acoustic standpoint. So the low frequencies are very well supported in this room. And that's true of all the other rooms in the studio as well. I used Adobe as a construction material for the structural walls. Um, Adobe is an unfired earth brick. It's just essentially dried mud. And I used it because it's Uh, very soft relatively speaking soft and non-rigid material concrete or or brick if you make a wall out of those things then the wall is very rigid if you tap on one side of the wall with a hammer you can hear it on the other side because of its rigid structure it transmits the vibration through the wall because adobe is soft if you hit one side of the wall with a hammer it just goes thup and absorbs the energy and you don't hear it anywhere else. Um, so these these walls are essentially self-isolating. They prevent the transmission of sound through the wall and they don't support vibration within the wall. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Thanks for the explanation. I'm curious who was the first person to work with you in the studio and who is working with you now?
1: Um, when we were in the construction phase we had about I want to say it, at peak we had 12 people on the payroll during the construction phase. Post-construction, um, when we were operating as a studio, the maximum number of people we had in the build, and, uh, as employees, I, th- I want to say, was six full-time employees plus um, a rotating crew of interns. And now we have four full-time employees and uh, a rotating crew of interns. Our mutual friend Gregoire was uh, a um, an intern here first, and then he was a staff engineer for a few years. And he's now independent, an independent freelance engineer, but he still comes back here now and again to do sessions.
0: Mm. And who did you train personally? Who do you train still today?
1: Um, Greg Norman, who's our chief technical engineer at the studio and another recording engineer here he's been working here the longest like he worked for me or he was an intern before I even owned this building I had a small studio um, in a house about a mile from here and he was an intern at that house studio and then uh, once we bought this building he worked on the construction crew and then after the building was finished, he carried on working here as an engineer. He taught himself electronics, and now he does all of our electronic maintenance. And also he manufactures some components that we sell. The, yeah, there's a, a mic preamp that he designed that I think is absolutely stellar. I, I It is my my preferred mic preamp for a lot of different things.
0: Mm. I would like to try it, so hopefully I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about a typical session in terms of preparation? I'm curious as to how much time you dedicate to listening to demos. If like early morning when the session starts, it's a back and forth discussing with the band or you do a lot of preparation beforehand? Um,
1: Most of the time. The preparation consists of me speaking to the band in advance, finding out what kind of record they want to make and that sort of thing. I don't necessarily need to listen to their music, but I do sometimes. The beginning of the session is a long conversation, or a thorough conversation, doesn't have to be long, about exactly what approach they want to take in the studio, like, you know, and organizing the session in terms of resources, like, how many songs there are going to be? How many minutes of music? How many? Taylor, I think someone's here for you in the front door. Hang on one second. I'm going to see if I can mute this.
0: <laughs> I like the sound of it. Yeah. <laughs> you probably not gonna as gonna much.
1: Disconnect the phone for the moment. Yeah. So the beginning of a session is a is a thorough conversation about what kind of record they want to make. If there are any special studio stuff that they want to do, I get an outline of each song that shows everything that's going to appear on every song and that's so that i can organize the session in terms of tracking and overdubbing and make sure that there's time and resources allocated for whatever we need to do at the beginning of the session for example i can set the tape machine up as either a 16 track machine or a 24 track machine Mm -hmm. 16 track is slightly better sound quality a little heavier bass response, um, a, a little more headroom, so less distor- less distortion. Generally speaking, things sound just sound a little bit better on, on sixteen track. The, that's because the geometry of the format means that each individual tape track is going to be wider. So, if it's possible to fit the session on a sixteen track, um, I always do it. Do just for the sake of the sound quality. 24 track still sounds fine and some sessions require more extra stuff and more overdubs and for those sessions I set this machine up as a 24 track machine but in order to know which of those to do I have to have this conversation with the band where we figure out how many things are going to be on which of the on each of the songs and who's responsible for them it's also good to make a big exhaustive list like that So that during the session, if things come up, if somebody comes up with a bright idea about, oh, yeah, I want to put a tambourine there. Well, there's a place to jot that down and you'll make sure that it doesn't get forgotten and overlooked. And over the life of the session, over the course of the session, that document grows and becomes more complete. And uh, eventually um, those notes allow you to sort of do a punch list and make sure that you've gotten everything done that you wanted to get done on the session.
0: That's what I like about uh, analog recording because that session prep is paramount for the medium used because you need to choose, you know, as you said, like the, the 16 track or 24 track, and um that preparation is kind of like lost in the digital world.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you have infinite tracks available, things tend to grow infinitely. You know,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: one nice thing about um, the analog formats is that. If you know that you have 24 tracks available, you are going to be parsimonious about throwing extra stuff on there. You're not going to create future problems for yourself. You know, it forces you to make editorial decisions fairly early. It's not a case of, oh, just sing it 20 times and I'll chop something together. You know, that 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 kind of laziness is not rewarded. I mean, you do still see it occasionally, but it's it's not standard. Like, the standard in the analog world is you, you organize things and you get them right and then you record them. And in the digital world, you often are recording things in a state of you know unpreparedness and then figuring out how to make sense of them after the fact. That's a much more time intensive process and in a professional studio environment where you're paying for the time, that's uh, a very clumsy way to go about things. It can, it can get quite expensive to be indecisive in that, se- in that sense.
0: I agree. I worked in an analogue studio for three years. There was no computer in sight and I could definitely see the benefits of it. Uh, On top of the session prep, there was also the focus that it gives to the musicians and the engineers, uh, the happy accidents, things that you can't remove and you have to deal with, or technical limitations like the length of the tape or, you know, not doing like loads and loads of takes. Um, Do you encourage engineers and artists to work in an analogue environment when they can?
1: Well, I'm an analog engineer, like I, I've never, I, I'm not capable of doing a digital session. I have worked on some digital sessions with an assistant where the session was started digitally and brought to the studio to do some work, and then it's going dis- to go away from here and, and be in the digital round the whole time. And in those cases, I have an assistant that runs the Pro Tools, and I just operate the analog side of it, that is the, the microphones and the equipment and the console. And I conduct the session like a normal session, but the recording medium is the is the Pro Tools rig. Yeah, my my reliance on analog methods is not a romantic one. It's not that I I have a, like a an emotional attachment to, to analog equipment, or that you know I like the smell of tape or anything It's like <laughs> none, none of that nonsense. It it's I feel a very heavy responsibility to my clients to make a permanent recording for them. And analog recording is the only way to make something that is fundamentally durable that will, you know, if we record something on a reel of tape and I put it in the box and put the box on the shelf, you can come back in a hundred years and open that box and play the session and we don't really have to worry about it. And that's not true of any digital format. There's no there's nothing even remotely close to that level of archival archival permanence, and I feel like my responsibility to my clients is to is to make their, their music permanent. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been thinking about it, you know, literally every day over the course of my career, and there's just never been, nothing has ever satisfied me that digital recording will have achieved the level of permanence that analog recording has. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I do think that there are nice aspects of analog recording, uh, you know, in the in the way that sessions remain manageable in size and you you don't find yourself in a kind of a decision paralysis where you have so many options of what to listen to that you don't know where to begin. And I do like the fact that when as you're working on an analog session, you are getting closer and closer to completion as it finishes and you don't leave you don't have a bunch of things that are kind of undecided so I I do like aspects of the analog workflow but the the critical thing for me is just the 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 permanent nature of analog recording and knowing that I can make a master tape and that it's good for a century or so that makes me feel much better about you know my my role as a as a as a recording engineer, mm-hmm. you know
0: that makes sense. And in terms of choosing between fifteen inches per seconds versus thirty, um, how do you decide this? Um,
1: so there there's a this is a rather involved conversation, but the the behavior of the tape machine varies as a function of its speed. Like the the sound quality of the recording. Has different characteristics at 15 and 30 inches a second. That's at 30 inches a second, it's uh, hard to get very extended bass response. You need a physically large head uh, and a relatively large tape track in order to get good low frequency response. Some tape machines manage it by using very large, very carefully engineered heads, but most tape machines at 30 inches a second, the multi, most multi-track machines at 30 inches a second, the bass response starts to roll off at around 60 hertz, and by the time you get down to 30 hertz or so, you've lost several dB of compliance in the in the recording. Especially these days, when a lot of music is detuned, there's a lot of energy in those fundamental frequencies that are that are that low and lower rock music in particular i think sounds better if those all of those low frequencies are preserved at 15 inches a second the low frequency response moves down an octave so you don't start to lose you don't start to get a roll off on the in the low end until you're down in the 20 30 hertz region and that's you know, very, very low in the audio spectrum, and you still have usable frequency response below that. The tape machines that we use, the Studer 820s, the high frequency response is also still quite good at 15 inches a second. Like you get usable response above 20 kilohertz up to about 24, 25 kilohertz um, at 15 inches a second. So I feel like the high-frequency response is not compromised at 15 inches a second, and the low-frequency response is definitely enhanced. So I tend to do the vast majority of my sessions at 15 inches a second on these tape machines. If I were working on a tape machine that had poor bass response at 15 inches a second or poor treble response at 15 inches a second, I might change my mind. But most of the time, i found that tape machines... Tend to sound, rock music in particular tends to sound better at 15 inches a second on the multi track. Our stereo masters are recorded on ampex machines, half inch ampex ATR. And I actually did some experiments, some frequency sweeps and some music experiments. And the bass response at 30 inches a second on the ampex machine uh, was just as good as at 15 inches a second. And there seemed to be some slight, some noticeable benefit in the high frequencies at 30 inches a second. So our stereo masters are all recorded at 30 inches a second, or the majority of them are recorded at 30 inches a second um, on the half-inch Ampex machines. I recently, not recently, but a couple of years ago, I did a record with the band Sun, and their music is very heavy, has a lot of very low frequencies in it. And I thought that they might be an extreme case where extended bass response on the half-inch machine might be a benefit. So we did a a test. We did a test mix um, of one of their songs at, at 15 inches a second and one at 30 inches a second. And the one at 30 inches a second sounded better. Like the high frequency detail was noticeable and there was no difference in the low frequency response, no, no audible difference in the low frequency response. So even for music that's predominantly low frequency information, I found that the Ampex machines at 30 inches a second are by far the, the best
0: format. Well, thanks. That definitely answers the question. <laughs> um, what are the essential... And or unique pieces of equipment that you have in the studio, like the Josephson C700, which has two capsules, those pieces of equipment that you really, really like in the studio.
1: I'm, I'm spoiled for choice when it comes to microphone, like m- microphones. We do have an extraordinary microphone collection here, and that's just a result of me over the years buying use things that seemed useful. And hanging on to them. So we have a really great mic collection here. And that if I had if if I consider that one thing, I would say that's the one thing that makes my life easy in the studio is I, I never have to worry about not having the correct microphone for something. We have a lot of Josephson microphones. The E22 is a condenser microphone. We were involved in the design of that microphone. And I'm extremely happy with that. It was intended to be useful primarily for drum recording, and I do use it for drums every day. But I also find it quite useful on guitar cabinets and as an acoustic instrument mic and occasionally as a vocal microphone. The other Josephson mics that we've got that I really like, there's a a small diaphragm condenser microphone that uses a Gefell capsule. The C617 has absolutely phenomenal bass response. like it goes down to like sort of seismic frequencies in its bass response and it's it's the the best sounding mic over a piano that i've ever used uh and i yeah i consider them essential now the other josephson mic you mentioned the c700 is a, intended to be a vocal microphone it has a a figure eight capsule and an omni capsule and you can blend those capsules to synthesize a polar pattern but they also it affects the sound quality as well like the more As you add in the figure-eight capsule to the omni-capsule, you get a more detailed, more up-close sound. And as you back off the figure-eight microphone, you get a slightly more diffuse sound, slightly less proximity effect, slightly less detail. So I find it very useful being able to dial in the sound quality using that microphone by adjusting those two capsules against each other. I think the the collection of ribbon microphones that we have is, is the thing that I miss when I go to another studio. When I go to another studio and they may not have any ribbon microphones, or they might have only one or two, that's the thing that I miss. I find them absolutely invaluable on recording acoustic and electric instruments, like electric guitar, acoustic guitar cello, violin, thing. I just find them and I use them as drum overheads a lot. I just I find ribbon microphones just very flattering on, on a lot of different things.
0: Cool. Thank you. Um, I can listen to you talking about microphones for like hours, but I need to stay a bit focused <laughs> on the question. Uh, following your background, it seems that you have been mainly self, you're a mainly self-taught engineer. But you mentioned earlier that when you opened the studio, there were 12 people with you. So my two questions are, have you been influenced by other engineers that you may not have met, but you like the the records that they engineered? And have you worked with many other engineers as well?
1: Well, everything that I know how to do in the studio, I was either shown that or taught that by somebody else, or I read about it and I figured it out um, by experimentation or... It's something that comes from first principles that I also read about or was taught by somebody. So I haven't invented very much in the studio at all. Almost everything that I know how to do, I was taught by somebody else. Um, And yeah, and I was deeply influenced by a couple of people. Ian Burgess was an engineer in Chicago who eventually moved to France and built a studio in France called Black Box in Anjou. Uh, with his friend Peter Dymel, and yeah, he was a good friend and a great engineer, and he was a real champion of the punk bands in Chicago in the 80s, and he was a huge influence on me, like his bedside manner in the studio was very friendly, um, he was willing to try anything. If somebody had a goofy idea about wanting to try some crazy technique, he would hop out of the chair and go and set set it up. You know, I really admired his attitude. I don't have that kind of bedside manner myself. Like I'm not, I'm I, I'm not a real go-getter kind of cheerleader in the studio, but I do appreciate his willingness, I did appreciate his willingness to try anything and be really sort of open-minded about what was a valid technique. John Loder was another person that influenced me a lot. He ran Southern Studios in London, and he recorded a bunch of really just impeccable-sounding punk records that really captured the uh, uh, aggressive and sort of threatening nature of a lot of that music. So I admired that about his like taking that aesthetic seriously and applying very, very high technical standards to it. Um, And he was also, you know, very generous with his information. Like whenever I had a technical question, he was, he was always happy to help answer it. And uh, he gave me a lot of advice when I was opening the studio, like how to go about doing things from a organizational standpoint yeah, he was just a tremendously helpful person. And and the two of those guys, I definitely emulated them. Um, not necessarily their recording style, but their attitude in the studio. Wow. As far as listening, I think the first records that I heard that really that sounded remarkable to me, that where I made note of who it was that had done the engineering, were some of the post-punk records made in the 80s that Steve Lillywhite made. A lot of those records had a really dramatic sound that was quite different from what had come before them, and very like live ambient sound, and that that I'm sure that had an effect on me in in terms of my aesthetic and um, records that I made.
0: Thank you very much for sharing this, and I will like have a look into them and into their records for sure. And talking about recording techniques, have you been challenged recently, and have you experimented with something, and you were like? Cool. That's a new trick that I'm going to put in my box.
1: So um, Bob Weston, who is the bass player in the band I'm in, Shellac, is also a recording engineer. And I read an interview with him about 10 or 15 years ago where he described a practice of his that was so smart that I immediately stole it and I started doing it myself. He said that on every session, he tries to set up one thing that he's never done before. He tries to like, it can be like a choice of microphone or a placement of a microphone or a, a technique for an acoustic technique for something. He tries to do one thing at a minimum, just one thing that he's never done before. And I do that myself. I, I make, a, make a point of when I'm setting up the session I decide that there is going to be, I'm going to try one microphone that I've never tried before. And it can be a very small thing, you know, like, or I'm going to try a physical location for a microphone that I've never tried before. And so on every session, there's one little thing that I'm doing that I've never done before on the session that I did this week. For example, I used a combination of microphones on the bass guitar that I had never used before as an, just out of curiosity And in the end, it ended up working well. And I will probably go back and try that technique again, maybe with some other refinements, maybe swapping one of the microphones out. But yeah, I, I think it's important to be constantly interrogating your methods and constantly expanding your vocabulary. And like I said, it can be very small things. It can be subtle technical things or like a different, organization of the patch bay or something just I found it very valuable to, to make a point of doing one thing new and unique for each session
0: I'm laughing because the intern in the studio where I used to go regularly she was making fun of me every time I was on a session because she said like you're trying something different every time I see you and I'm a bit in awe that you are doing this as well. I'm just like, oh my god! <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it's 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 a great approach.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good way to improve your, you know, the the sort of comprehensiveness of your knowledge is by constantly finding something that you've never done before and forcing yourself to con- confront it. I, when I was in college, I um, I studied painting under a painter named Ed Paschke, Um and. Uh, He's a a guy I admire tremendously. I admire tremendously. He had a thing that he would do. He would routinely bring his classes to his studio so that they could see a working artist's studio and they they could see his paintings in, in work. And he would offer to his students that if anybody wanted to add a little something to one of his paintings that they should feel free Just go up, you know, feel free. Yeah, the paints are all there. Just go and if you want to do a little something on one of my paintings, go ahead. And that struck me as kind of dangerous, right? Like, what if somebody just decided to go and make a big mess on one of his paintings? And very rarely somebody would do something like that. Somebody would do something very bold and make some, like, really intrusive mark on one of his paintings. But he saw painting as problem-solving, like I'm unhappy with this part of the painting, so I have to work on that part of the painting. What am I unhappy with? You know, figuring out how to deal with the element that was bothering him. That was how he approached his method, his painting method. So if somebody introduced a new problem into one of his paintings, that was actually an opportunity. That was a way for him to learn. You know, that was an opportunity for him to deal with a problem that he hadn't considered up until then. And I love that open mindedness of his, like that generosity that just, yeah, go ahead and fuck up one of my paintings. I'll deal with it. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's an amazing attitude. And I like the idea that I can be put in a position where I'm uncomfortable or I have something that I've never heard before and I have to make sense of it. I, that, I think that's good for me mm-hmm. as part of my practice.
0: That's a very good point. It's great to hear that. Um, what I find in interviews is that a lot of people talk about, you know, your views on the music industry and the fact that you don't want to produce, but not a lot of interviews tackle the art of recording. And I was wondering, do you sometimes wish you were doing more seminars about, you know, being a recording engineer? Because a lot of people nowadays are self-proclaimed mixing engineers and it seems there's less and less recording engineers out there. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I've done some teaching seminars and I enjoy them. It's Engineering is something that's difficult to talk about. It's much easier to demonstrate. Like, I physically show you the device and what I'm do, using the device for and how, how I calibrate it. And, you know, like, talking about it is not that productive. But I have done um, some teaching seminars and I enjoy them. I like being forced to think through my process in a manner that I that allows me to, to explain it, um, I think that's good for me. It keeps me rigorous with respect to the details and the sequence of events in a, in a, any process that I'm doing. And we did one teaching seminar here at Electrical, and that that worked well. I have done some in France at a place called Mix with the Masters. the the It's at a studio called La Fabrique near Marseille. So yeah, that's that yeah that's a a nice thing to be able to teach and show people stuff um in podcast it ends up being you know anecdotal stuff like trying to talk about a a technical matter on a podcast is very difficult because i mean i can't i can't show you the meter or whatever you know
0: yeah i agree but i do hope that uh, yeah there are people out there craving learning how to record and we'll go to studios and learn the craft and um, that it will continue being passed on. And in terms of that passing on, that legacy, some people say when you're gone, no one will do what you're doing. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I mean, it's true that the mainstream of the recording industry is not doing, for example, analog recording exclusively, right? But there are a lot of people who have it as part of their arsenal, or there are a lot of studios that are set up in such a fashion that they can do an analog session if if the need arises, right? And as things progress and as what are now contemporary recordings eventually become historical recordings... I think there will always be a need for people who can address things in an analog fashion, and if nothing else, there's going to be a reckoning with all of this digital recording that is so fragile. I mean, we're we're already seeing it. There are records that have come up on uh, significant anniversaries, where, you know, twenty five, thirty years after the initial release the record label would like to make a big deal out of the anniversary of this record and do a fancy, comprehensive, high-fidelity reissue of it. And they can't because all the work products were digital and none of them are usable anymore. And I think that reckoning will require people to acknowledge the value of the analog techniques If only because in the distant future, the only music of our generation that people will be able to listen to is that which was preserved in an analog format. And I think as a historical thing, what I'm doing now is exactly the same as what people were doing 20, 30 years ago. And I suspect that in 20 or 30 years from now, whoever survives me will still be doing this to some degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think I'm the last of the Mohicans. Like, I've been to studios in various places in the world, in various places in America, where analog recording is alive and well. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not anybody else's day-to-day bread and butter like it is mine, but analog recording is still a feature of an awful lot of recording studios.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And long live analog. <laughs> um, I'm coming to the Last questions, and I promise I'll free you after that. Um, Do you still have time to go to gigs? And what are your favorite venues in Chicago?
1: Um, I do. I don't go to that many. I mean, during the pandemic, I wasn't going to gigs at all. And I mean, during the lockdown portion of the pandemic, obviously, none. My band has done a couple of tours recently, so I've gotten to revisit some of the venues that I really like. Around the world, some of my favorite venues are the Vera Club in Groningen-Holland, um, Brudenell Social Club in uh, Nottingham, England. I really like the Terragram Ballroom in Los Angeles. In Chicago, I quite like, there's a venue called Lincoln Hall where my band has played a few times. I think the acoustics there are really great. I like seeing bands there. I also like really informal venues. I like like loft parties and rented halls and stuff like that. Like, yeah, I enjoy informal space, gigs that have been sort of put together informally. I'll, I'll admit I don't go to a lot of shows at the moment. I'm still very conscious of COVID safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be responsible I I interact with a lot of people and I don't want to be a, a vector for infecting anybody. Mm-hmm. So
0: mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and hopefully we can put COVID behind us soon. The very last question is related to the title of the podcast, The Music Tricked Me. Let me ask you, and I'm so excited to hear your answer to that. When did the music trick you? So when, what records have you heard that you had to go back to because you thought, how do they do that? Like something happens sonically or musically that I can't figure out and they may have used a trick like they used an equipment in a weird way or an instrument in a weird way.
1: Yeah, I, it's not a trick. The records that have com- have kept me sort of captivated are records that just have an organic spookiness about them where everything seems fitted together in a way that creates an atmosphere they the first recordings by the modern lovers jonathan richmond's band they were i think they were done as a demo but they and were eventually released as an album there's a song called hospital which is a live take of a song kind of a story song where you can hear the bleed of the band in the vocal microphone uh, and it just creates this sort of a booming quality to the to the song that sounds really photographically real to me and that one song really captivated me when I first started listening to records up close. The Stooges album Funhouse has an um, amazing atmosphere like the whole atmosphere of that record is is just very sleazy and very. Captivating, like when I listen to it, I feel like I'm in the room with those people, and like the whole experience is illicit, like there's something illegal about that what's going on on that record and and I'm getting to be a part of it. There are some records that I just admire from a you know, I, I think that the job done on the recording is impeccable. Like, the early ZZ Top records, I think, are absolutely impeccable records. They were recorded very simply. They're very Spartan records, but they sound really crisp and really powerful. The Neil Young record, Zuma, that's another record that, like, it seems like a world when you listen to that record. It's not, you're not hearing sound. You're hearing, you know, it's it's like you've been allowed into a place.
0: Wow. That's plenty of records. That's plenty that listeners can listen to discover or re-listen to with that in mind Uh, so thanks so much for sharing that and i'm very appreciative of your time you've been more than generous (laughs) and we've covered everything it's been great so thanks so much for all that
1: well thank you thanks for having me this has been fun
0: (laughs) thanks so much